0: Wouldn't it be awesome if you could predict the future? I mean, Wouldn't it be great to know exactly what's going to happen in your life over the next few days, and over the next few weeks, and the next few months, and the next few years? There was a boy who could do this. The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes is a short story written by American author Margaret St. Clair. It was first published in 1950 and then in 1971 it was turned into a teleplay and it became the first episode of season two of the Night Gallery series. And the book and that episode of Night Gallery centered around a very gifted 10-year-old boy named Herbie Bittman, played in the episode by Ron Howard's younger brother, just if you're interested. Herbie was a genius and was always studying, always learning more and more, and he was especially interested in astronomy and was always reading up on the subject. And Herbie... Could predict the future. Herbie's talents had led him to the attention of a New York television station who put him on the air to deliver commentary and to deliver the news. But on one program, Herbie went off script and predicted the future. He predicted that a missing girl would be found in the next 15 minutes and that an earthquake would hit Los Angeles at 6 a.m. the next morning. And it came true. A news bulletin came into the studio. And it confirmed that Herbie's prediction of the girl being found alive had come true. And the next morning's newspaper showed that the earthquake prediction came true as well. Fast forward a year into the future and we learn that Herbie has made 106 correct predictions. But one day, Herbie suddenly doesn't want to give his prediction. He is pressured into it by the TV executives, because that keeps the ratings up, right? So Herbie predicts that one day soon there will be no more war and that humanity would live in peace. But then the next day Herbie tells his grandfather that his last prediction about peace was a lie. Herbie informs his grandfather that he had seen a scene enacted in the near future which he could not understand until his childhood research in astronomy had explained it to him. Herbie had learned about something called a nova. What he had really seen and not wanted to tell his TV audience was that tomorrow the sun was going to explode. There would be a supernova and everyone would pass away. So Herbie was reluctant to give his last prediction on TV because of what he saw. The sun would soon explode and everyone would be dead. And then just as Herbie finished telling his grandfather what he saw in the future, the sky suddenly turned bright orange. The end. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could predict the future? Wouldn't it be great to know what's going to happen in your life in the next few days and weeks and months and years? Wouldn't it be great to know if you should take this job or that job or move to this city or that city. I mean, we've all been there before, right? We've all been at that place where we just wanted to know God's will for our life. What should we do in this situation? What decision should we make? We've all been at that place where we wish that God would speak audibly to us and tell us what he wants to do in whatever situation we're in. Go here. Do this. Don't do that. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? But that's not exactly how the Christian life works. Wouldn't it be awesome if it were that simple? It would, but it's not. And what we're going to see in Mark's gospel today is that Jesus is pretty good at predicting the future. We even saw this two weeks ago in Mark 13 when Jesus predicted that there would be earthquakes before the Roman emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Jesus then was the man who predicted earthquakes. And we also saw in Mark 13 that Jesus not only predicted earthquakes, but all kinds of things that would happen before 70 AD. And we know that they did happen. They were fulfilled. We also saw Jesus use apocalyptic and cosmic language just like the Old Testament prophets when he destri- described the cosmic supernova-like things that did, in fact, happen in 70 AD. But unlike Herbie Bittman, who wanted to spare his audience what was coming in the future... Jesus wanted his audience to know what would happen before 70 AD. Jesus predicted the future in Mark 13 precisely because he loved his audience, because he loved the disciples, and he wanted to prepare them for what was coming in the next 30 to 40 years after his death. Jesus is good at predicting the future because Jesus knows the future. And because Jesus knows the future, that means that you can trust God further than you can see him. You can trust God further than you can see him. Now, I stole that phrase from Matthew's com- Matthew Henry's commentary where he said this, the better God is known, the more he is trusted. Now, think about that. The better God is known, the more he is trusted. So if you're struggling to trust God... You need to be reminded again or study and learn and know what God is like. The better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. Those who know him to be a God of almighty power will trust him when creature confidences fail and they have nothing else to trust to. And those who know him to be a God of infinite grace and goodness will trust him though he slay them. Those who know him to be a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness will rejoice in his word of promise and rest upon that. Though the performance be deferred, and intermediate providences seem to contradict it. Those who know him to be the father of spirits and an everlasting father will trust him with their souls as their main care and trust in him at all times, even to the end. You can trust God Further than you can see him. So that means that you can trust Jesus right now at this moment. All the way to the end of your life. Even though we can't see that far into the future. And I have, I have no idea if this is going to be a good sermon or not. And neither do you. It could just fall flat and tank. We have no idea, do we? We have no idea what's going to happen in the next 35 minutes. I mean, if I preach God's word, what I believe, it might be a decent sermon. I don't know. It might totally tank. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 30 minutes. We can't see that far into the future. But we can trust him even when we don't have a picture of what our future holds. And that's what the disciples will learn in our passage today. Or actually, they won't learn it. As we'll see in a moment, they will struggle to believe what Jesus says. Think about that. The disciples will struggle to believe what Jesus says to them. Imagine that. Imagine struggling to believe what Jesus says. The disciples actually struggled to believe God's word. Can you believe that? People struggling to believe Jesus' words, people struggling to believe God's word. Who ever heard of that? I have never met anyone like that before. I have never met a Christian that struggled to believe God's word. Have you? Well, of course you have. Because you have struggled to believe God's word. You have struggled to believe Jesus' words, and so have I. And that's why we need to be in Mark's gospel today, so that we can hear Jesus' words again and believe them and trust them. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. This is a great passage we're going to look at today. A great passage for people who are weak. Know anybody who's weak? A great passage for people who struggle. Know anybody who struggles A great passage for people who struggle to believe God's word. For people who doubt. And for people who just can't seem to get their act together. Know anyone like that? It's the guy standing in the pulpit. I struggle to get my act together. We're going to see a lot of people who just can't seem to get their act together in this passage. We're going to see ourselves in this passage today. And we'll see Jesus. And who does not want to see Jesus when they read God's Word. Not me. I want to see Jesus. I need to see Jesus on every page of this book. And so do you. So let's dig in. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is vintage Jesus here in this passage. He predicts the future, and it happens just As he said, he tells the disciples, go into Jerusalem, which is overcrowded at this point because of Passover, and you will find a guy carrying a jar of water and you should follow him. Whatever house he goes into, you should go into the house and you should tell the owner of the house that I want to confirm my reservation and he will show you a room where you should then prepare Passover for us. And so these two disciples did it and they found everything exactly as Jesus had said. So this is vintage Jesus here. He predicts the future and it happens just as he said. But please don't rush past this paragraph in Mark. You might think it's a relatively uh, mundane, kind of an ordinary, boring passage perhaps. Maybe you don't get the warm fuzzies when you read this passage. But it's an exciting passage because there's a phrase in verse 16 that is so wonderful And it is as true as you can get. And it's this phrase right here. And found it just as he had told them. The disciples went to the city and found it just as Jesus said. They found it just as he told them. And you can too. Today, you can say this about every promise in God's word. I have found it just as Jesus said. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. I found it just as Jesus said. That would make a great headstone, a gravestone. I, I might put that on my headstone. The other option that I'm considering is something that Puritan Samuel Rutherford had on his gravestone, acquainted with Emmanuel's love. Now, he had more like a paragraph, which is probably what I'll end up with too. But it said, acquainted with Emmanuel's love. And I like that phrase a lot too. But I also like the words here from Mark's gospel. I found it just as Jesus said. So if you come and visit my grave, you'll be reminded that whatever I said about Jesus over the years is true. That I found it just as Jesus said. And as I'm experiencing and enjoying the triune God in that moment while you're still on earth and I'm still with Jesus, you will be able to know that everything I'm experiencing is still just as Jesus said in his word. And if I live to be an old man and I find myself lying in a hospital bed surrounded by my wife, And our six kids, and our grandchildren, and our great grandchildren. I hope I have enough strength to hold God's word, to hold the Bible in my hand, and hold it up to them and tell them, Read the Bible. It's full of God's promises, and I have found it just as Jesus said. And I can say that today. I don't have to wait until I die. I can say that today, and you can say that today too. So let's do that together now, shall we? Hold up your Bible or your iPhone, and let's say this together, okay? Ready? One, two, three. I have found it just as Jesus said. We're going to do it again. A little more belief in what you're saying. One, two, three. I have found it just as Jesus said. That was good. Every promise in God's word leads to this cul-de-sac. I have found it just as Jesus said. Every promise in God's word leads to, I have found it just as Jesus said. Every promise in God's word can be received by faith. It can be trusted. Just like we saw this morning with our New City Catechism that we read earlier in the service. Question 42, how is the word of God to be read and heard? Answer, with diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith. So no matter what happens in our future, we can accept by faith the promise of Romans 28. Here's the problem though. We've become so accustomed to hearing Romans 8:28 that this verse, I fear, has kind of lost some of its punch. The problem isn't with God's Word. The problem is with our heart. And so we've just kind of become so used to hearing Romans 28 that it doesn't land on us anymore. It doesn't strike us. So hear it once again with fresh ears and, and a fresh, soft heart that's ready to receive the truth of God's Word. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all things in the past, all things right now, all things in the future, they're working together. Together with God's providence, with his wisdom, with his sovereignty, with his love, with his care. All of these things that are happening in all of our life are not at odds with God's character. They're working with God's character to do what? To bring good into your life. So where do you need to trust God today? Think about that verse. And then rub Romans eight twenty eight into that situation maybe you're considering a new job or maybe you need a new job and you want to pray about it god is this the job for me should i take this or not take this rub romans eight twenty eight. maybe you're looking to move maybe you're looking to move to another city or move to another state i'd recommend texas but maybe it's parenting issues you're struggling as a parent My kids aren't in here. I didn't say this in the first service. Man, it was a rough week. Just trying to love them. Trying to disciple them. It's just like, God, I can't. I'm just so tired. Parents, can you relate? Rub Romans 8.28 into how you're trying to raise your kids. Maybe it's a broken relationship you're experiencing. Rub Romans 8.28 into it and say, God's going to bring good out of this. But Jesus is not done with all of this predicting the future business with the disciples just yet. He's going to do it again in the next paragraph as he's breaking bread with his friends. So now look at verse 17. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And Jesus said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So once again we have Jesus predicting the future here, but this time it's not good news. Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And so obviously they're distraught over this, and then they begin asking Jesus one by one Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Can you imagine asking that question? Just having to wait your turn to ask that question and thinking, Oh, I hope it's Peter. It's probably Peter. It's got to be Peter. Just having to wait for you to ask that question and then having to wait for Jesus to answer your question Is it me, Lord? Do, 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 do. I don't think Jesus did that with them, because of his care and love. I bet he answered them immediately. Is it me, Lord? No. Is it me? No. It's just too much. But then Jesus reveals who it is. It's the one who's dipping. Uh, Bread into the dish with me right now Mark doesn't tell us in this paragraph that it's Judas but we know from the other gospels that it's Judas and Mark told us earlier that Judas had agreed to stab Jesus in the back and we'll find out in a couple paragraphs that it is Judas but what Mark does tell us in verse 21 is very sobering it would have been better if Judas had not been born woe to him how sad To be so close to Jesus and not love him and not trust him. To be so close to Jesus and not love him and not trust him. And there are many like this in churches all over the world today. So close to Jesus, but they don't love him. They don't trust him. They're a part of the community of faith. They're a part of the church. They maybe have even taken the Lord's Supper. Maybe they've been baptized. But they're not really born again. They're close to Jesus don't love him. They don't trust him. Don't be that person. Trust Jesus today. But Jesus also tells the disciples in verse 21 that it was predicted back in the Old Testament that he would suffer and die. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So it was predicted that he would die. And that's exactly what Jesus says next. He will die. He will give his body, he will give his blood for many. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. They're here celebrating the Passover... The Passover meal was a family celebration of God's deliverance of Israel, how Yahweh had delivered them from the clutches of Pharaoh, delivered them from the clutches of Egypt out of slavery. And in each family, when they celebrated the Passover, a young child would ask questions whereby the father would recount the Exodus story to his family. He would explain the meaning of it all and the correlation to the Passover meal that they were eating. He would recall the story of applying the blood to the doorpost like we read in the book of Exodus and how the angel of death came and spared those who had blood on their doorposts. This is what the disciples are celebrating here in the upper room in Mark 14. But then Jesus flips the script on them. And once again, Jesus predicts the future. Jesus is speaking of his future death here. The disciples of course, are going to have to trust Jesus, aren't they? They were celebrating the Passover, something they had done all of their lives, and now Jesus flips the script and says that he's inaugurating the new covenant, and that the bread is his body, and the cup of wine is his blood. So this was a a paradigm shift for these guys. They were having to learn a phrase that Matthew Henry uses over and over again in his commentary on the Bible. You can trust God further than you can see him. That's what the disciples were having to learn in the upper room that night, you can trust God further than you can see him. They were going to have to trust Jesus. They're going to have to leave behind Passover in the future because Jesus was now the paschal lamb, the Passover lamb that was being slain. They were now going to be celebrating communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper going forth into the future and not celebrating Passover anymore. They're going to have to trust that Jesus was, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7, He's the Passover Lamb. And they would be leaving the old covenant behind, never to return to it again, never to return to the sacrifices. And we have to do that too. We have to trust. And there's that word again, trust. That part hasn't changed at all in the new covenant. We still have to trust. We have to find joy and nourishment in the truth that God is faithful to His promises. So let me ask you this morning, does it stir your heart to hear that God is faithful to His promises? Or is that another just kind of phrase you're used to hearing and it just kind of rolls right off of you or bounces off? Does it strike you and bring joy and nourishment to your heart to hear once again God is faithful to his promises. If not, let Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs help you. He said this, Thus you see how a godly heart finds contentment in the covenant. Many of you speak of the covenant of God and of the covenant of grace, but have you found it as effectual as this to your souls? Have you sucked this sweetness from the covenant? And contentment to your hearts in your sad conditions. It is a special sign of true grace in any soul that when any affliction befalls him, in a kind of natural way he repairs or returns immediately to the covenant. Just as a child, as soon as ever it is in danger, need not be told to go to his father or mother, for nature tells him so, so it is with a gracious heart. As soon as it is in any trouble or affliction, there is a new nature which carries him to the covenant immediately where he finds ease and rest. If you find that your hearts work in this way, immediately running to the covenant, it is an excellent sign of true grace. Have you sucked the sweetness out of the covenant of grace, out of his promises, sucked the sweetness out of his word? Do you run to the covenant like when a child gets hurt? What does a child do when they get hurt? They instinctively run to mom or dad, don't they? No one has to tell them. No one has to teach them. Okay, Johnny, you crashed your bike and skinned your knee and elbow. Here's what you're supposed to do now. Run to your mommy, okay, Johnny? That's what you're supposed to do. Now get along. No, kids instinctively run to mom and dad, don't they? And you can never understand what they're saying. (laughs) Something's wrong, and you came to the right person. And when a child is scared, they instinctively do what? They run to mom and dad. No one has to teach them that. No one has to tell a child, when you're scared, go to mom and dad. They do it instinctively. That's what Jeremiah Burroughs is saying here. That's what we're supposed to do, to instinctively run to Jesus when there is pain, when there's hurt, when there's sorrow, when there's fear, when there's worry. We run to the covenant. We run to God's promises. And that's what the Israelites did as they rehearsed the Passover when Jews celebrated the Passover, they would remember their past deliverance from Egypt and they would anticipate the future redemption of the Messiah who was to come. And they had done this ever since exodus, ever since the exodus from Egypt. And the disciples had done this their whole life. But now, Jesus is telling them that all of their years of anticipation had come to fulfillment in him. And now, in the Lord's Supper, we still remember what Jesus did for us. And we still anticipate what the future holds, which Jesus tells us in verse 25. Jesus is going to have a glass of wine with us one day. Once again, Jesus predicts the future in verse 25, and he tells the disciples he would not drink wine again until the day when the kingdom of God is ushered in in all of its fullness in the new heavens and on the new earth. Jesus won't drink wine again, he says, until that day. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is saying that he will drink a big glass of wine again at the wedding supper of the Lamb. One day, Jesus will drink wine again. He will celebrate With us, when he drinks it with us at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And as you may have guessed, Jesus isn't through making predictions. This time he predicts something and the disciples refuse to believe him. Imagine that. The disciples will not believe Jesus. The disciples will flat out refuse to believe Jesus' predictions about their future And what Jesus predicts about their future is not flattering. Here's why. Because Jesus is going to tell them that a time is coming when they just won't be able to get their act together. And isn't that the story of our lives? It's not just the disciples, it's us too. In his book, The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together, Jared Wilson says this, In the end, as in the beginning... It is not our good intentions or even our good deeds that will get us out of the muck of ourselves. It is God's rescuing hand. It is his enduring announcement over us messed up creatures. I love you that changes everything. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, take, this is my body. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was saying, I love you. And those are words that the disciples would have to come back to time and time again precisely because of what Jesus tells them next. Now, look at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Jesus now predicts a spiritual earthquake as it relates to the devotion and faithfulness of the disciples. He tells them that they're all going to fall away. That they will all abandon him. And they are just a few short hours away from this actually happening. They don't know it yet, but they're all about to desert Jesus. But here's what I love about Jesus. He's about 12 hours or so away from being crucified, and you know what's running through his head? It's the prophet Zechariah. God's word is running through his mind. Jesus gives the disciples proof here that they will all fall away, and he does it by quoting the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. They, of course, don't believe Jesus, so Jesus tells them, and get this, Jesus tells them that after he is raised from the dead, after he comes back from the dead, he says, I'll come and see you. He just told them he's going to come back from the dead. Think about that. Resurrection, coming back from the dead. And they don't believe that they will fall away. Jesus predicts their falling away and he predicts his resurrection and they don't believe that they will ever abandon him. And so what's going through Jesus' mind at this point? It's the book of Zechariah. It's the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. So Jesus tells them something basically like, so you don't believe me that y'all are going to abandon me? Hmm. Well, guess what? The prophet Zechariah was in the predicting the future business too. And that passage that you have read and heard about your whole life, Zechariah 13, 7, the verse about striking the shepherd and the sheep scattered, guess what? That verse is about us, me and you. I'm the shepherd and y'all are the sheep. I get struck and you scatter. That's how this thing works. Zechariah said so and now so do I. I get struck and you scatter. How do you like them apples? I love that an Old Testament prophet is on Jesus' mind 12 hours or so before he dies. The Old Testament was running through Jesus' mind and heart as he was facing the most horrible future that any human being could ever face. He's about to drink the cup of the wrath of God on the cross and it's the Old Testament going through his mind. Where is his head a few hours before his death? He's thinking about a prophet in the Old Testament. Now, You know that Peter is going to have to interject something here, right? You know Peter, right? Peter has to open his big mouth. So in verse 29, Peter very arrogantly assesses the situation and determines that even though all the other disciples will fall away, by golly, he ain't going to. And what does Jesus say? This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus predicts the future for Peter, and it involves a rooster. I see a rooster in your future, Pete. Now, do you think that Jesus telling Peter two times that he's going to fall away is enough to shut Pete's big mouth? Nope. So Peter responds in verse 31, If I must die with you, I will, but one thing I will not do is fall away, Lord. They may all fall away, but I will not fall away. And then all the disciples are like, yeah, what Peter said, we won't fall away. Can you believe these disciples? Jesus tells them. He predicts the future. He speaks to them, and they don't believe him. They couldn't see that in the future, that they would fall away. They struggled to believe Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine struggling to believe what Jesus says. The disciples actually struggled to believe God's words. Can you believe that? People struggling to believe God's word? People struggling to believe Jesus' words? Who ever heard of that? I have never met anyone like that before in my life. I've never met a Christian who struggled to believe God's word. Have you? Well, of course you have, silly. Because you have struggled to believe Jesus's words and so have I and that's why the gospel is good news it's good news for bad people it's good news for people who struggle to believe that's why the gospel is good news for people who just can't seem to get their act together and that's why in spite of your struggles to believe you can trust God further than you can see him as Matthew Henry said, you can trust God when creature confidences fail. You can trust his word even though the performance is deferred and intermediate providences seem to contradict. You can trust even though God coming through for you is deferred and put off in the future and the intermediate providences, the intermediate things that God is allowing to happen to take place before his promise is fulfilled in your life, you can still trust him in the intermediate provinces that seem to contradict his promise. When everything around you contradicts God's word, you can trust God's word. Maybe you're stressed out today over your future. Maybe you're wondering what God is doing right now in your life. Maybe you're wondering, why is God allowing what God is allowing in my life right now? I don't know. Maybe you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and you haven't received the answer. Or you haven't received the answer that you want. You keep trusting the Lord. As we prayed in our prayer of confession and celebration this morning, His unfailing love is orchestrating and controlling every aspect of our lives. It's His unfailing love that is directing and orchestrating every aspect of our lives If we knew what God knows, our singing hearts would burst with uncontainable and uncontrollable joy. If you knew what God knows about what's going to happen in your life in five years and how He worked through what you're going through right now and how you're going to see that goodness in five years, your heart would burst with uncontainable and uncontrollable joy. And maybe you will in five years know why things are happening the way they're happening. And maybe you have to wait till eternity when you're walking on the new earth with Jesus. And he shows up at your house one day. And he's got a roll of blueprints with him. And you're like, What are the blueprints for? And he says, Come, let me show you. And he rolls them out and he says, Remember? when this was happening in your life and you were wondering how I was going to bring good out of it, let me show you how it did. And then poosh, you'll just see all the ways that God was bringing good to you and good to others and glory to his name through the thing that you're going through right now. And one day Jesus will roll that blueprint out and you will see the effect that it had, the ripple effect in your life. Maybe you're not an architect, but you'll love blueprints on that day. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes God answers our prayers quickly and miraculously. And sometimes he takes a sweet time. And we have to learn to trust when everything is dark. But whatever is going on in our lives, Jesus is always there. And just like in that episode, The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes, it was Herbie's study of astronomy that caused him to understand what he saw, that a supernova was coming. It was as he studied books on astronomy that it made sense what he was seeing, and then he connected. And it's the same way with God's Word. You may not be able to see what's in your future, but it's as you dig into God's Word and you begin to know Him and know what He's like and know and understand His character, you can understand your present and your past and what's out there in the unknown in the future. But you have to be in this book to get recalibrated and be reminded again that God is sovereign but not just sovereign that he's good too. You may not be able to see where your life is going in the next week or month or year but you can see far enough into the future to see where history is headed for eternity and that's the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus will one day take his church, his bride, by the hand and sit down at a table at the wedding reception and have a glass of wine and eat a meal with us. And I bet the food is going to be out of this world. This is where history is heading. And that means that you can trust God further than you can see him. Wouldn't it be great to be able to see every event in our lives like the disciples here? Jesus tells them, you're going to find a guy walking with a jar of water. He tells them, I'm going to come back from the dead and then I'll meet you in Galilee. I'll come see you. He tells them he is initiating the new covenant and they would be with him at the wedding supper of the lamb. He even tells them that they would fall away. I mean, the disciples got what we all want. Jesus told them about their future. We all want to know that at some point in our lives, right? We want to know what our future holds. But it doesn't work like that usually. We do know from God's word where history is headed, but in our day-to-day lives, we don't know some things that we would like to know. And that's when we have to trust. We are a people of faith after all, right? When we call someone to repentance, when we do evangelism and missions, and what do we do? We ask people to do what? To trust in Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. So from the very beginning of you becoming a Christian, you had to trust You had to have faith. And that's what you will have to do every day for the rest of your life. We are a people of faith. We trust. We don't leave trust behind once we believe. Following Jesus as a disciple is nothing but trust. Always trusting in Him. Trusting in His Word. Trusting in the Spirit to work in our hearts and in our lives. We do know from Jesus what he said on that Passover night so long ago exactly where history is heading and that's the wedding supper of the Lamb. Make sure you RSVP to the invitation. You can do that today. You can RSVP by admitting that you are a sinner, by owning up to your rebellion against God and by trusting, and there's that word again, Trust by trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And when you do that, even though you can't seem to get your act together, when you do that, when you trust in Jesus, what Ian Dugood said will be true of you, even when you can't get your act together. He said this, when Jesus Christ calls you to himself, he doesn't just say to you, I love you for now. Let's see how this works out as we go along. If you are holy enough and devout enough over the next 50 years or so, then maybe I'll take you to heaven when you die. No. When God calls you to himself, he legally binds himself to you in a covenant relationship permanently and unbreakably. The security of your salvation does not rest, therefore, on the strength of your vow to follow Jesus. Rather, it rests on his initial and irrevocable choice. God is not stuck with you forever, as if you both had too much to drink in Las Vegas and made a bad decision while passing a drive through wedding chapel. God actually loves you. Hard, though, that may be for us to grasp sometimes, He knows you inside and out with all of your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins and your heart idolatries, and yet he still loves you personally. That's good news. And that's where history is heading. That's what your future holds for you, Christian, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where you will see with your eyes one day the one whom your soul loves. Will you be there? Make sure you RSVP to the invitation today. And how do you do that? Trust. And there's that word again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of your son, which is so simple that even a child can understand it. And yet, It's so deep and rich and unbelievable that God would become man and that those two natures would be united together in one person and that your son Jesus lived a perfect life and never sinned. It's unbelievable. And that he died in our place and then you brought him back from the dead in a glorified, resurrected body. That's crazy. And he ascended to your right hand where he sits, and he'll come again one day in power and make everything new. And so it's so simple and yet so rich, so deep. And so for anyone here today who does not believe, would you grant them the gift of faith, grant them repentance, that they may trust in you. For those of us here who've been adopted into your family, because we do trust in Jesus, our prayer is this. We believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.